Europe is very different than the US, right? You guys have 330 million people all speaking English, the same currency, a, a much more sophisticated SaaS ecosystem. Here in Europe, it's very different. We've got different languages, different currencies, different adoption rates. And also, crucially, there's a lot more what I would call resource constraint. And welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president of Blast Media, and as always, I will be both your host and bartender today. I was joined today by Alan Gleason, the founder of Agility, which is a SaaS marketing consultancy based in London. Alan and I had a chance to talk about when is the right time and how you should successfully expand into the European market. And he talks a lot about the differences between the two. And there were some really unique differences that I wasn't necessarily aware of that I think will be really interesting to you. Talking about resource constraints, currency, obviously language barriers, but even things like pricing arbitrage, as well as arbitrary picking of headquarters. So grab a drink and listen as Alan and I dive into expanding into Europe. Lindsay, thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Absolutely. It is into your evening. You are based in London, correct? That's absolutely right. It's just gone eight o'clock here. Thank you for joining me in the evening after hours. I appreciate it. Alan being overseas, unfortunately, we were unable to send him a cocktail kit. But I always stay true to the process, Alan. No matter what time of day, I'm drinking the most basic drink. I'm assuming you have White Claws there in London. Is that made its way over there? I'm not familiar with it, but I know that there is a rule, Lindsay, that you have to drink for two if the guest hasn't got a drink, right? For those that know me well, they will tell you that is not a problem. But I always stay true to the process. Even if it's like Tuesday at 10 a.m. my time, I get some pretty insane looks in the office from our new employees and then have to backpedal. But thank you for joining me. Your team actually reached out to me, which is awesome. Always love when people listen and feel like they have a great guest for us. And they were right. You are a fantastic fit for us. Alan works with Agility, is the founder of Agility, uh, which is a SaaS marketing consultancy. So he has stories on stories of how he's helped SaaS companies grow and certainly has seen his fair share of missteps. And what we're going to be talking about today specifically is how and when you should launch into Europe if you are a US-based company. This will be highly applicable to to our listeners. We have SaaS founders and marketers uh, from all stages. So we, I'm sure, have some early stage founders listening, but also representatives from publicly traded companies and everything in between. So this, if you have not yet expanded into Europe, this is your episode. But before we dive in, Alan, I do want to give our listeners a better understanding of who you are and specifically what agility does. Let's start with how did you get into B2B SaaS? What was that journey? So I started, Lindsay, in banking, of all things. I, I spent the early time of my career in Barclays, which is a big uh, financial institution in the UK here with a, with a pretty much a global footprint. I'm giving my age away. It was back in the kind of late 90s. And they were very keen at the time to branch into, I kid you not, things like television banking was the big future thing that they were going to look at. So I was in a sort of strategic role looking at all these fancy new um, delivery mechanisms that we take for granted now. 
And one of the things they did was they partnered with a leading ISP at the time. So there was two sort of ISPs. One was AOL, which you might be familiar with, but in Europe, it was called FreeServe. And I was very fortunate to be a part of that initial journey when it was a sort of 56K dial-up initially. I ended up then leaving Barclays and joining a software company, an American software company. And I kid you not, we sold boxes of software, which many of your listeners may not be familiar with, but I was selling boxes of software on an annual release cycle that people downloaded onto their desktop. And then the internet sped up and that sort of transitioned me into B2B SaaS after that. I remember boxes of software, also aging myself. We started Blast Media 16 and some change years ago. We've always, always represented B2B software companies. We are SaaS now, but that wasn't the delivery model back then. So when we would want to demo our clients' products, they would send us a disc in a box. And that is what we did. So I remember those days. You're right that many listeners have no idea what we're talking about But those were the days, indeed. The funny thing was like, it was a big deal, the transition, right? So it was called application service provision was the first kind of term. And of course, you had all these developers that used to code on an annual release cycle and obviously optimizing for a a disk-based experience. And hey, presto, all of a sudden there's distribution via high-speed connection. Big change, right? It changes the business model. It changes the unit economics. It changes the development team. So that's where my journey started. And I've been heavily involved ever since. Um, Initially in my early days, often as a chief marketing officer of uh, a number of different um, VC-backed startups, they typically are VC-backed. And then for the last seven or eight years as a consultant running my own consultancy. And if you could tell us a little bit more about agility specifically, SaaS marketing consultancy is a broad term. It puts us in the right mindset of what you do, but why does agility exist? It's a mix, essentially, of what you would call a fractional CMO or a, an interim CMO or a chief marketing officer that's not full-time. So a lot of the European startups I work with, they're probably at the stage where they haven't filled out their C-suite. So a couple of things for your listeners to be aware of. Like, Europe is very different than the US, right? You guys have 330 million people all speaking English, the same currency, a, a much more sophisticated SaaS ecosystem Here in Europe, it's very different. We've got different languages, different currencies, different adoption rates. And also, crucially, there's a lot more what I would call resource constraints, because in in the US, the checks that are written for seed and series A are a lot bigger than you're getting in Europe. So I guess I fill the gap of those companies that really need strategic insight on a C-suite level, but they can't afford to fill out the C-suite. So most of my work is essentially acting as a chief marketing officer, but not on a full-time basis. And the other kind of secondary piece of work that I, I typically do would be boots on the ground, initial journey from US companies into Europe. Before we get into some of the hows and mistakes and best practices that you've seen, let's talk about when a company should even be considering this? Is there a right time? And and if so, when do you know it's the right time to start expansion outside of the US? In theory, you could be doing it from the get-go, right? Because once your website's live, you can attract people from all over the world. So, you know, that's a kind of an obvious point. The way I like to look at it, there are signals that you can keep an eye out for. So one is Google Analytics, right? You can just go into your Google Analytics and you can start seeing where is the traffic coming from. So that'll give you an indication. And clearly, the US will be the bulk of it, but you'll often find UK will probably be second for most B2B SaaS. 
And then you might see things like Australia or South Africa or Germany. You tend to see the same patterns emerge. So for me, I think part of it is you may be there from day one, depending on what category you're in. You might be just straight off the bat serving people all over the world. But if you need to make a more considered decision, I'd be looking for the kind of Google Analytics data. But also, if you're starting to get some inbound leads from people in Europe, that suggests that the market isn't being as being well served here. And then the final piece is it often comes into play around a Series B funding. Part of that kind of um, agreement, as it were, is to say, actually, can you internationalize? Okay, we got the domestic US piece, but can you actually win business overseas? And that's often a key question VCs will be looking for. So that can be a, a kind of a, another point that says, actually, now the time is right to be doing so. And I suppose the product-led growth companies where there's a freemium or a trial or whatever the case is, that your path of no resistance, not even least resistance, to your point, you're a global company from the start. But if we're talking about an enterprise sale where there are uh, multiple conversation stakeholders, it's a long sales cycle, high dollar volume, I would imagine that requires a strategy. And you had mentioned something interesting because you use the term boots on the ground. And boy, boots on the ground today up until you know March of 2020 meant something very different. How important is it to have boots on the ground if we're, again, talking about a, an actual st- sales strategy in Europe? How important is it to have that actual footprint here? And how has that changed with the uh, work from home and remote environment? The world is still um, a very different place. And of course, um, there's pros and cons with everything. So I think what's happened is enterprise, um, the enterprise end of the spectrum is definitely adapting a little bit more, recognizing that the days of flying around may not ever return to the kind of level that, that they once used to. So I think there's definitely been That puts pressure on things like UI and UX, then trying to eliminate friction, trying to be as um, onboarding has got to be seamless, those sort of things. So I think there's definitely been a structural change in in how to approach things. I think the the interesting thing about the boots on the ground is you can probably do it initially with third parties or freelancers or consultancies or however you want to do it. So you may not want to initially do a commitment. What you do need is someone that is at least understanding Europe a little bit. And by that, we grow up in, in, in Ireland or the UK with a lot of the content we consume is US. If I look at B2B SaaS, the writers I read are US writers, the TV, the popular culture, but the reverse isn't the case. So people don't know a lot about Europe in, in some instances. So they may not know that there's different currencies, that there's different political regimes, there's different tax regimes, there's different languages. So I think you either need to have and one example is I've worked with, quite a bit with a, a sort of Series C um, stage company in the US. That's It's just regular calls with the C-suite team and not quite shooting the breeze, but very direct questions around what does the landscape look like in Europe for X, Y, and Z. And again, I can help inform larger strategic debates that help you know teams make better decisions, I guess. I would imagine that through your tenure, you have witnessed and been a part of great successes, but you've also witness missteps. Are there some fairly common missteps or mistakes that you see tech founders or CEOs make when leading their teams into expansion that you could tell us about so that those listening can avoid doing the same? There's a lot of stuff that you do need domestic support on from the European side. So I sometimes see what I would view as very strange decisions being made initially. I don't want to name names because they they would be brands that would be familiar to audience, but like 
Picking locations in Europe for head offices is an interesting dis- discussion. There tends to be a heavy bias towards UK and Ireland at the moment. That might be more nuanced moving forward because UK has actually left the European zone. I guess it's just the things that I see them that do wrong would be one thing I see that's done wrong quite a lot is aggressive localization too early. By, by that I mean is deciding all of a sudden we need Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, German versions of the website and not recognizing that actually for lots of enterprise solutions, most of the buyers will be speaking English anyway. So that probably is a step that's needed, but also not recognizing that's a very heavy price to pay because that's a costly exercise. And of course, do you constantly need to update it? And that will improve over time, you know, Lindsay, as AI starts playing a part. But sometimes I do look at companies and I'm like, wow, you didn't really need eight or nine languages for Europe. Some more obscure Danish and Norwegian ones. It's Because then I look at the Google Analytics and my kind of assumptions are borne out because I can see very little traffic in those. Because of course, if you build it, they don't necessarily come. That piece is one to watch. The second one I would suggest is to watch is what I'd call pricing arbitrage, Lindsay. And by that, in the US, it's easy to just think of dollars this and dollars that, right? And whereas, of course, in Europe, you've got euro and you've got dollars and you've got sterling. And sterling is frustrating, right? Because sterling is the biggest market, but it's a single currency that's not used anywhere else. So you can start running into when I call price differentials, then you can be expensive because you just haven't really recognized this fact that you're you're optimizing for a dollar rate when sometimes you you may need to finesse it. So I picked up three things. There was this pricing arbitrage, the aggressive localization too early, um, and then arbitrarily picking a headquarters. I want to dive into that a little bit. What are some best practices when evaluating where you should actually set up shop? There's no doubt there's a bias in my answer here, right? Because you ask someone from the Netherlands, they're going to say Amsterdam is the best place. You ask someone from Germany, they're going to say Berlin, right? I think Europe is a, is a fantastic place to do business, right? So I think wherever people set up, they will be will enjoy it. Um, there has been a big tendency for Ireland to play a kind of a big part in, in that. And I guess there's a number of reasons for that is that the ecosystem in Ireland is, is fairly sophisticated in terms of SaaS businesses, right? So You've had the early versions of Dell and EMC and, and Microsoft and, and IBM and Apple come in and really big footprints for Ireland's only got 5 million people, but yet you've got all these headquarters from these major US companies. It's English speaking. It's got access to Europe. Culturally, it's very similar, right? There's lots of similarities, right? Between downtown Dublin, it isn't a million miles. Some of your listeners may balk at that idea, but there'll be a Starbucks and there'll be, we mightn't have Dunkin' Donuts, but it's quite familiar. And then the time difference isn't quite as pronounced as going further east. But you've got lots of industry lobbies and government lobbies that are going to try and entice you. So We've got a big conference in Lisbon this week um, called Web Summit, and that's the Portuguese government is really trying to entice businesses to Portugal. I think what I would say is things like access to talent, I think, and and I think uh, that's a key driver. There are people in Europe that can help navigate the different options, and then I think it's a case of just choosing one. And I don't know if it's the the same there as it is here. Ten years ago, it was there, these emerging tech cities where all of a sudden it was the, the Silicon Valley of the South or Silicon Valley of the Midwest. And now, though, every city has its own tech ecosystem and tech hub, and it really matters less and less where your company is headquartered. Now, talent is still... Still a consideration, although now with most uh, companies operating remote, it has 
it's changed that so much. But are you finding that there's enough tech hubs throughout Europe that you can pick a city that feels right or that has the right feeling for you and be okay? I think that's exactly it. So often you'll have senior execs might want access to good schools, right? The motivation may be completely different than, and there was one US company recently, I was speaking to the CEO and actually the kind of topics were more around access to good schools was a primary driver, but also visas, right? Because Europe had, had UK leave the Eurozone, that's very much a more, you know, a narrower visa constrained environment, whereas Europe by large is, is much more open to attracting ta- talent, whereas the UK has closed the door a little bit more. Now it still will, will take obviously senior execs, but the motivations can be very varied, right? Going back to the first wave of American companies, a lot of them, you know, actually came to Ireland because they had roots in Ireland. There was people that had great grandparents that had left Ireland and that was enough to entice, actually, let's just check out Ireland. And that's so, so often it's not the, where the best tech hub, because you're actually completely right. The whole beauty of SaaS is that you can start anywhere. The remote thing, I think, is an interesting challenge, right? Because of course, you can attract talent from anywhere, but hiring and onboarding people remotely is definitely difficult. There's no doubt about that. And particularly when you're at the growth stage of the spectrum where you're more resource constrained, where you're time pressed, everything is a thousand miles an hour, and you don't have what's called an, an employer brand. So you're largely unknown. You hit an interesting point there. This kind of access to talent piece is more nuanced. Now, of course, if you're a Series C level company coming from the US, you'll have a big chunk of change behind you. So you'll be in a better position to to hopefully access a good talent pool. I want to talk through a bit of like timeline and first steps. Let's again, let's assume we're not a product-led growth company, but really more on that mid-to-large enterprise sale. So hypothetically, we see we start to see traction on Google Analytics. Maybe we have inbounds from outside of the US. What is that first? step. Do we try to secure European-based company without any boots on the ground here in the U.S. so that we have some sort of proof of concept and we actually have a living and breathing customer? Maybe they're you know, based in London, but do we need to have that first before it makes sense to in- start to invest resources both in people and marketing overseas? Yeah, I think you can do a kind of light touch approach. So what I would say is, again, pattern recognition is everything in B2B SaaS. So you might find actually that a lot of the cohort coming to initially are in the UK, which might say that actually London then becomes an interesting spot to go. I've done the reverse, interestingly, quite recently. We've had an expansion into North America, and actually we put someone into Toronto. I think um, part of it was was, um, someone that had lived in Toronto for a couple of years, and it was a low-touch entry whereby, you know, they're in the same time zone. That was the primary motivation, the same time zone. So that was the key. It's not a full-blown operation, but it's the first kind of hint at it. And, And then I guess on the marketing side, you know, Google Ads is something you can just dial up out the gate and start using that because it is a kind of, particularly in Europe, it's really the only show in town and increasingly plays a big role in raising awareness. So you can start dialing up your revenue and then picking off a couple of conferences in, in, in Europe to attend. There is SAS Stock, which is a fantastic conference, which I believe is going back to Dublin in October after being remote because of COVID. So I think they would be some of the things I would think about because now, of course, you might want to go a lot more aggressive. And this, of course, is depending on the check that you've raised, 
if it's a if it's a, a big check, we got to go really quick. We got to, but some of those checks start looking at things then like um, acquisition, right? So I've definitely had an exercise with another client recently whereby, you know, the, there was like what you will find is that there are going to be companies in Europe that will probably be in the same category. So then the question may be, do you come and do what's called an acquihire where you're probably taking them out if they're small enough to get access to the market that way? So there are some of the things to be thinking about. And he, here's the crazy thing with SaaS, much as a lot of the questions are looking for answers and playbooks the reality is a lot of the thing is it just depends right SAS is just so nuanced it's it's really difficult to give a straight answer and i'm not trying to be evasive but it's just it depends on so many factors and that's why it's in one part fascinating and in one part very you know frustrating because i could easily do a best guide to boots on the ground into europe and some of your readers might go yeah but it, you know what about this and what about that so that's why i guess it's so nuanced and I, I do want to touch more on marketing, also nuanced, but also something that has rules and regulations around it more and more. What do um, marketers need to know and look out for when they start to market in Europe? That's a really great question. Really important to be aware of the GDPR, which is a kind of data provision that I think is broadly understood, but there's definitely a kind of a tendency for people to be just understanding that personal data really isn't up for play. So that's kind of one you do go back to something we talked about a little while ago. There are things like currency, right, that you may stay away from and you might just anchor in dollars and leave it in dollars. But of course, there are tools that you can IP detect where the browser is. And if it's in the UK, change it to sterling. If you do that, you got to obviously watch that the price gap doesn't become um, a problem. Content and blogging and all that stuff. American English is fine. We, as I said, we, we grow up listening to consuming content. So, so that's not a worry. We're not worried about spelling mistakes or spelling nuances or any of that stuff. Okay. I was going to ask about that because you had mentioned Google AdWords. And I, I was going to ask you if, from a localization standpoint, if you feel like the copy or imagery needs to be changed, if it's English speaking, obviously, but you're saying no. No, but we have the reverse in play, right? So we have the reverse, which is quite funny. So a lot of my clients that are targeting the US, we write in US English and we try and use US images and we make sure that we're not trying to um, masquerade as U.S. companies, but we make sure that we've got coverage in the U.S. hours and we make sure that that we are up to speed with what's going on in the U.S. because it tends to be the kind of the, no matter what category you're in. And I guess the beauty of the work that I do, Lindsay, is unlike most CMOs, right? So full-time CMOs might be two, three years in one job and move to the next. I'd probably have six or seven different clients a year. So I get exposed to all the different sort of issues and challenges that they come up with. And then I can fast track some of the answers. I remember this was probably a good 10 years ago. My founder and I took a trip to visit European PR agencies, and they were all actually based in London looking to find a partner. And we learned really quickly how differently PR is done uh, and how the approach differs in the UK versus the US. And we have a lot of clients will say, well, can't you just you know, buy a list and pitch in the UK? It's can, but just because we can doesn't mean we should because the success rate, and it's not even about relationships. It, it, it was just completely different approach to PR and what works here didn't seem to really work there. And so it, it's why I asked about marketing in general, if even, even outside of rules and regulations of maybe some other marketing strategies or tactics that you've noticed that are fundamentally different the way they're done here versus there. I go back to point I made right at the start, which, which 
and then I'll veer into kind of the answer. Companies in Europe, be it buyers or buy, be, be it companies that are SaaS companies, it's a very different context. So when I read content coming out from the leading B2B SaaS people, we're just way more behind the times here. And it's because of the funding and the resourcing. So a lot of the kind of European companies that like we haven't had huge exits, right? SaaS takes a long time, it takes for most part 10, 15 years to get through. And you guys had a head start. So we haven't had huge amounts of successful exits. So when I look at my kind of client base and the cohort there, the ecosystem is definitely growing, right? But when, when you've got more resource constraints, you just don't have big budgets, right? Your, your budgets are a lot lower. Your traffic to your websites are a lot lower. Your sophistication is a lot lower. You're running a much narrower tech stack. Your marketing teams, instead of being five or 10, are often two or three, and you may be struggling with one of those people. So it's quite a different kind of context, which just, I guess if you're marketing into Europe, it's recognizing that they're probably more price sensitive. They're also probably a bit more nervous around deployment and resourcing. Some of the things that we do are are consequence of that. It's just that when you come from resource abundance, which is, I'm not saying everybody in the US is resource rich, but I'm generalizing a little bit, but it's a world of abundance relative to kind of resource constraints and that kind of permeates everything so it does mean then that the marketing strategies in europe are by and large a little bit more conservative it's probably pc content the odd event maybe some webinars but again it, it goes back to this law of large numbers thing whereby the traffic on our websites is often a fraction of what you get on on, on the us sites because again us domestically has 330 million out of the straight off the gate Whereas you set up in Ireland, you've only got 5 million people domestically, or you set up in the UK, you've got 60 million. So there's some of these kind of things in the background that make it a bit trickier. And then there's definitely, you alluded to PR, and PR is phenomenal, and it's just so important. But sometimes there's an impatience around expectations results. So I think in the US, like I put content and PR in the kind of same bucket, and same with outbound, actually, outbound, outbound SDR activity. You have to take a year view of it. you got to literally pay for the year, take the year view, don't be looking at ROI and expecting results in month two. But that's what happens here. Alan, you are just speaking my language. It's when I have a prospect ask me if we can do a 60-day contract, I'm just like, no. And just by asking that question, we also can't now do a year contract because I know you fundamentally don't understand PR. So that's exactly it. <laughs> I appreciate that. I do find that insight really interesting and helpful, though, on the lack of resources. We specifically mentioned tech stack. There are uh, many SaaS companies that they're, one of their big value props is optimizing your tech stack. And so taking that into consideration that the tech stack is small to begin with. So the idea around optimizing it is really far in the future and also just surrounding overall budget. Those are two great pieces of insight to take into consideration. So things like attribution, right? So again, that's very difficult in Europe, right? Because you probably don't have the tech stack in many of these earlier stage. And, and, and I guess like it could be up to series B and you don't have the maturity probably in the ability of the, the team because it's so resource constrained and trying to do a thousand things, they just don't have enough time. So that's an example of, of it. Another one, I'll give you an example. I had a um, a chatbot, chatbots on websites. So I had a heavily pitched by a chatbot company trying to get me to switch from the chatbot that I was using on our enterprise company. And 
And I'm thinking like, I've got a thousand things in my place. For a modest feature uplift on a chatbot, I ain't got the time. You can send me, and I was getting, it was brilliant marketing. I was getting personalized videos and my team were getting messages and they were hitting my personal email and they were hitting my work email and they were hitting my LinkedIn. But the reality is the chatbot wasn't getting used that much because it was B2B SaaS, which in Europe, there might be, I don't know, a thousand people on the site a month or whatever. So there's not 150 people in the chatbot each day. So actually, step away. That's why I'm not being rude. That ain't going to ever be a priority. Switching chatbots is never going to be priority for a SaaS vendor in, in Europe because we don't have the traffic. The chats are just not that hot. Leave us alone, please. No, I get it. It makes sense. Alan, this has been great. I have many takeaways here. Three missteps I wrote down and then just some differences regarding resources. As we end every episode, I always ask my guests if they have a signature or favorite toast to send us out. And you being an Irishman, I'm hoping you're going to give me something very unique. What is your favorite toast? It will be a pint of Murphy's. So pint of Murphy's is, you know, probably have heard of Guinness. So Guinness is the one of the national drinks alongside Bailey's, alongside Jameson whiskey, alongside many others. But Guinness has a competitor called Murphy's, which is a pint of stout, which is very unusual. And you can't really get it internationally. So I haven't been to Cork in Ireland in a long time. I'm hoping to get there for Christmas, Lindsay. So if I do, I'll be raising a pint of Murphy's. And I will say schleunte. Schleunte is the Irish word for cheers. There's my toast. That's cheers. what I was hoping for. I will drink to that. Schleunte. Thanks again to Alan for joining me on SAS Half Full. That was a great conversation. I learned a lot. Hopefully you did too. He was not joining me for a drink today, but guess what? We can send a cocktail kit directly to your door. That's right. All you have to do is head on over to shakerandspoon.com forward slash half full and you'll get 10 bucks off your first cocktail kit and it will be delivered straight to your home or office. Always appreciate the listen and until next time, bottoms up.